This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Well, U.S. infectious disease expert Anthony Fauci saying it was possible the world would never find out the precise origin of the coronavirus pandemic. We know uh, President Biden just last month ordering a new 90-day review from the intelligence community about the possible origins of the virus. So, Tim, we've got that going on. Then we've got the Bloomberg Big Take about how the world's best hope to end the pandemic really just needs more doses. Yeah, and here to help us dive into all that and more is Daryl Gaskin, professor of health policy and management at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, joins us on the phone from Maryland. The Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Professor Gaskin, thanks so much for joining us. How are you? I'm doing well. And how are you doing? Doing well, thanks. How important is it that that we actually find the origins of the coronavirus? Well, I think with regard to um, finding the origins of the coronavirus, it's it's, I think it's more important that we know what the virus is and how to treat it as opposed to just um, finding its origin. Um, and I think we've done a pretty good job in terms of mapping the DNA of the, of, the, of the virus itself and then developing vaccines to try to combat the virus. So I think that's, that's really the, the major thing that we ought to be doing. And then subsequently learning how to treat the virus. Right, exactly. And we know the toolkit has certainly, it's a lot more full than it was about 12, 13, 14 months ago. Uh, having said that, at the same time, the past year, as you know, Professor Gaskin, that the pandemic really revealed once again all the inequities that are out there in terms of how healthy the U.S. population is. Some really healthy, some not. Some have great access to amazing health care, some do not. This is something that you look at uh, really closely. Have we learned enough this past year that we're going to get smarter about making sure that people are healthier going forward uh, and that people have more people have great access to good health care? Well, I think uh, what the pandemic has done is it's revealed that there are some real problems with health equity in this country. And those problems have persisted um, for decades. There's a, a, a historical report uh, by the, the, Heckler, the Heckler Report, which was um, published in the 1980s, which, which um, documented the um, disparities. And then there's a report that was called Unequal Treatment that was published in the early 2000s that documented these disparities. So from a researcher's standpoint, we've known about it for a while. But I think from the general public standpoint, they haven't realized how severe the problem is and then also the impact of this problem, that it's just not something in which uh, affects your neighbor, but it really affects our entire society. How do we get to a place where we, we learn from the mistakes of our past and actually fix this on the other side of the pandemic? Because it seems like this could be another instance of us recognizing something, but then policymakers not having the political will to actually accomplish something. 
Yeah, it's 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 um, really quite a thorny problem. I mean, um, we should all be sort of just moved by the fact that there are people who are uh, unhealthy uh, through no fault of their own, often. Um, and morally, that should be uh, something in which we should be willing to take on. But not only is it just uh, morally unacceptable, it's also economically, it's just right. it's just costing our society just a lot of money in terms of taking care of people who are, are sicker, um, who, um, and then those individuals, their ability to contribute to our society um, is is curtailed and compromised, and then also the fact that people are not living as long as they should, and and so all of these things impose significant costs on our society. So even right. if it, if you're not willing to address these problems because it's morally the right thing to do, we should want to address these problems because it's really sort of a real drag on our economy. Exactly. Hey, we just got about a minute or 50 seconds left here. How do you, though, unwind what's become such a business machine that is our healthcare program and our health healthcare industry, to be fair? Because there's a lot of money that's to be made when people are sick versus maybe keeping people from being sick. So how do we unwind that? And just kind of well, quickly. I think, yeah. I think it's we have to be willing to say yes and no at the same time. Um, we spend a lot on healthcare, but we just spend it on the wrong things. I mean, we, we really want to spend a lot on tertiary care, but not a lot on primary and preventive care. I mean, there are providers that are providing these services, but if you look at what we pay them relative to what we pay specialists, and then uh, in addition, we spend a lot on healthcare, but not a lot on public health. And uh, this crisis, if we were much better prepared public health-wise, we could have maybe averted um, hundreds of thousands of deaths if we just would have had the systems in place to monitor, track, and then um, and then isolate this uh, this virus. Sounds like we can just uh, start working on it for the next one because yeah, most people say there'll be one. What I'm concerned about is we won't even have those things in place for the next one. Exactly, and we'll we'll go through something yeah. very similar. Professor Daryl Gaskin, thank you so much. Professor of Health Policy and Management at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health with us, of course, on the phone from Maryland, uh, the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. But you do wonder, do we learn anything out of this? We have short memories. We really do. It's troubling. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. We want to get to the Bloomberg Big Take. It's an exclusive story that you definitely need to know about. This one from our Bloomberg Business Week team about the world's best hope to end the pandemic. Tim, it comes down to needing more doses. It certainly does. Joel Weber is editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Stephanie Baker is financial investigations senior writer at Bloomberg News. Joel is in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios with us. Stephanie is on the phone from London. Uh, Joel, COVAX. Which is maybe a which is maybe a, uh, a a term that not everyone's familiar yeah. with, um, it, but it is a global organization that is in charge of basically getting vaccines uh, to the place that places that would need them, and that's not always 
rich countries. In fact, it's usually every other country that doesn't maybe have the resources of the United States of the Americas. Well, it's arguably, as Stephanie and her colleagues write, the most complex international peacetime operation ever attempted. How is it doing as of now with securing enough doses to distribute to the world? Not well. Um, it's been short on money and doses, and, and that's um, where we can bring bring Stephanie in. Uh, because this is not the they've been saying this actually for for going on a year now that they're going to need doses mm. and money to to actually get people vaccinated outside of uh, the developed world and and that message is maybe finally breaking through and 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 to what do we can we attribute that Stephanie? Well, you know, I think that now that um, developed economies like the U.S. and Europe um, have advanced their vaccination programs um, and. They are looking at, you know, the end, you know, or the, the pandemic coming to a close or you know, coming under control, um, you know, looking around and realizing, you know, the world is not going to return to normal unless we get this pandemic under control in other parts of the world because, um, you know, we're not going to be able to travel and there's this risk of uh, variants um, uh, being created in countries where the virus is circulating. The more infections you have, the more likely you're going to have these variants. And there's concern that, um, you know, they, the vaccines may not work as well against all these variants. Uh, and if that happens, uh, you know, that could, you know, those variants could boomerang back and we could be back to square one in places like the U.S. and the U.K. that even have high vaccination rates. So, you know, COVAX has really been set up to try to at least provide a baseline of coverage for poor countries that can't afford to buy vaccines on their own to, you know, provide protection and immunizations to healthcare workers and the most vulnerable. Um, uh, but obviously, it's been underfunded. And I think the main reason why is it didn't have enough money early on in the pandemic to be competing with rich countries that were placing big orders with the promising vaccine developers. Stephanie, we, so we they were behind the queue. We were, t- we were talking about your story earlier with Daryl Gaskin over at Johns Hopkins. You know, why wasn't there more planning and consideration up front to making sure enough vaccines were there for less developed countries, for those emerging markets? We knew this was going to be a problem. Right. And, you know, the people who set up COVAX, Seth Berkeley, the head of this nonprofit called Gavi, and, and Richard Hatchett, who runs a, a research and development outfit called CEPI, they, they realized that this was coming down the pike. And so they set out to raise money to do this back in May 2020. And the money came in very slowly because countries were consumed with their own problems, trying to find vaccines for their own populations and, and really didn't step up uh, early enough. On top of that, we have a global shortage of vaccine manufacturing capacity going into the pandemic. Um, You know, before COVID hit, we had about five capacity to make about five billion doses of vaccines globally, including one and a half billion for flu. So we're now trying to more than double that. So that is part of the problem. And, you know, we didn't know which of these vaccines were going to work. And, Mm. you know, trying to do tech transfers and, and get manufacturers up to speed is incredibly difficult and complex, especially with new vaccines that have been developed. How much of an issue in, in hindsight, and I think we can say hindsight right now in the developed world, uh, is is hoarding of vaccines? Uh, I, I interviewed the Prime Minister of Jamaica back in January, and he accused rich nations of, of hoarding vaccine doses and not making them available to other parts of the world. Well, yeah, and that, that is basically what has happened. I mean, the U.S. has uh, ordered, I think, about three times what 
they need to cover their population. Um, the UK has done, you know, similar uh, orders. Um, so it, 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 they've occupying places in the manufacturing queue, um, and that creates problems for other countries trying to strike deals. So, um, you know, obviously that is happening now. The hope is that, you know, once we get surplus, the surpluses start to come through, those um, dose sharing arrangements will increase. I mean, in the U.S., you have uh, a gap of about 70 million now between doses delivered and doses administered. There's a glut of vaccines in the U.S. Uh, Biden has just announced that um, he'll share 25 million uh, doses of vaccines globally, most of that through COVAX. But in the grand scheme of things, that's like a drop in the ocean. They need a lot more. COVAX is 190 million doses short of where they hope to be by June. And that is mostly because they were hoping and relying on um, the world's largest vaccine manufacturer in India to make, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of doses. And now India, because of its second wave, has put export controls on the uh, on the vaccines produced there. And that has left the world with a huge supply gap. I think that Biden news um, is actually significant because it underscores sort of the whole point of Stephanie's story, which is COVAX has been under-resourced, underfunded from day one. And then, you know, a, a meager gesture of 25 million, you know, better than zero, which was what was there before. Right. But it's still, you know, just millions and millions off of what uh, COVAX is going to need. Yeah, and I guess I just assumed, well, you know, it's interesting, you do wonder about the pharmaceuticals, the major pharmaceuticals role in all of this. And again, I know that there were production, uh, you know, limitations, but, you know, I guess I would have expected, Stephanie, that the big pharma companies would have been maybe a little bit more helpful. You know, the thing that um, has always struck me is um, that the two leading developers, Pfizer and Moderna, Mm -hmm. um, did deals with COVAX very late. Um, yeah. Pfizer's deal was very small, $40 million in January. Moderna's only came in May, um, and most of those doses will only be delivered to COVAX towards the end of this year and next year. And I can't believe neither of them have just given doses pro right. bono to this effort, right. I mean, given how much they are making off of these vaccines. I'm, and I'm surprised people haven't called them out for that. Well, as someone in your story, uh, there's a quote, it's a global pandemic. We need a global solution. That's the only way we get beyond it. Great stuff. Stephanie Baker. It's our Bloomberg Big Take. It's a Business Week story. She's financial investigation senior writer on the phone from London. Jill Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week in our interactive broker studio. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. All right, this is a little depressing. It is our second most read story on the Bloomberg in the past eight hours. Millennials at the age of 40, Tim, they are falling behind their parents in every way. Is this your group? This is not only is this my group, but I felt <laughs> personally attacked when I saw the term geriatric millennial in this piece. Who's been, because, who's been telling my story? <laughs> because that is me. I am a geriatric millennial. That is like a mean term. It's an official term. All right. But listen, this talks about, though, um, how millennials at the age or the older, the geriatric millennials, really running out of time to build up wealth. Uh, let's get to it with Katerina Sariva. She's Bloomberg News Federal Reserve and Economics reporter on the phone in Dallas, as I said, one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg. Katerina, tell us what you guys uh, sought out to do in this story and what you found out. Hi, yeah. 
so um, you know, we thought it was really interesting that um, this, this the older um, millennials are turning forty this year. Of course, these are folks born in um, 1981, and this generation has been, you know talked about a lot in the past uh, 10 years or so. Um, you know, there's been a lot of kind of angst about whether all millennials are still living with their parents and so forth. So we thought it would be kind of interesting to take a look. And um, we looked at a variety of kind of wealth statistics and and just numbers around this and, and really found that this generation is very far behind um, where their parents and grandparents were in terms of things like home ownership, um, debt levels, um, kind of these key elements to wealth. Why is that specifically? Is it because of when we graduated from college into the a few years later, the, the, the Great Recession is it because college was so expensive for us? Is it because wages haven't grown as much as they were growing when our parents were our age? Is it all of the above? Yeah, I mean, it really is all of the above. It's a lot of different factors coming into play. And yeah, like what you're saying, I mean, college was a good bit more expensive for millennials. Um, they therefore incurred a lot more student debt. And that debt has really stayed with them and prevented them in many cases from doing things like buying a home, which is such a key way to build wealth. And then like you're saying, um, wages really haven't risen that much um, during millennials' adult years, um, not nearly as much as for their parents. And then conversely, things like home prices have really shot up. So it's really created kind of this um, much more uneven environment for millennials. Yeah, it's pretty staggering, some of the stats that you have come out there. But you also talk about, I love, there's like a cover page to all of this. A year of college for millennials was, I guess on average, 24600 For boomers, it was less than half that. Um, cost of a home, 328000 versus 216000 for boomers. Um, Middle-aged net worth, 91000 for millennials, 113000 for boomers. It doesn't feel like, in some instances, though, Katarina, that much. But we have to remember that wealth creation, even a few thousand dollars over time, adds up to a lot. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like this multiplier effect, right? Um, and especially with the way, with what home prices have done in the past few decades, um, the earlier or the, the sooner you're able to get in, the better, because it's just going to multiply and multiply. Um, also, things like, you know, stock ownership, savings rates in general, these things are, it's all lower. So when you add it all up together, it creates, um, you know, a, a bit more of a dismal picture. So based on, on your reporting, who you spoke to, um, and, and you know, you've done so much reporting on this, uh, Katerina, what is, what is the message for policymakers here? What is the way to prevent this generation, my generation, from, um, from a fate that's not so good? Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting. I think, you know, that this is why we're seeing some politicians talk about, like, student loan forgiveness, um, things like that, because I, I think, you know, they're seeing the effect that this is having on kind of holding back some folks in, in the millennial generation. Um, so it's, it's things like that, you know, perhaps thinking about uh, solutions for this debt burden. Um, it's also thinking about 
uh, retirement and, and what's going on with Social Security. I mean, if you have fewer savings, um, you know, uh, when you get into retirement age, I mean, you're probably going to be more dependent on things like Social Security. So what is that going to look like when millennials start to retire? Well, and Katerina, if we break it down even, mo- you know, go deeper into this in terms of racial variances, right, it gets even tougher if you're, what, a black millennial or a brown millennial. Yeah, absolutely. And and the millennial cohort is much more diverse than the ones that came before, right? The country mm-hmm. population growth is is, is happening. Um, you know, there's more population growth among minority groups in this country. So every generation, every new generation is going to be more and more diverse. And we know that black and brown people, especially in the U.S., have much less wealth than their white counterparts. So, you know, it, it's it really has implications for the U.S. economy and, and growth going forward. Talk well, to, yeah, go ahead, Carol. No, you know what I think was interesting, what you said about policy implications, because this is going to be a voting block, right? Yeah. A pretty big-sized voting block, and you do wonder what that might mean, what kind of policies that they would, Tim, ultimately vote in favor of. Yeah, Katerina, I just want to end in our last minute by you talking about the the, the wider economic consequences or, or implications of a generation like this not having the wealth that previous generations had. I mean, that has serious implications for growth. Yeah, exactly. And and we obviously, you know, <laughs> we want to grow the economy. So um, and and certainly to deal with um, our debt, bur- you know, our national debt burden, which has, of course, only grown in the past year. You know, we need that. We need an engine of growth. And if you have people with fewer means to spend and, and, and less ability to kind of um, to, to do things like that and, and buy homes, for example, um, it just really puts the economy in a more precarious state. Yeah, that is really something important to think about, you know, because you do think as people retire, maybe they don't spend as much, but a lot of them do have a fair amount of money to spend. But if this group does not, what does that mean in terms of economic growth? Not good. Well, listen, we talk about the aging of the of the yeah. economies, whether it's Japan, whether it's here, China seeing it. They just um, boosted how many kids you can have in terms of a family. So uh, people are looking at this seriously. Yeah, they are. Katerina Sarava, Federal Reserve and Economics Reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you for joining us. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. I want to get right to it because Ross Gerber is with us because we love to talk Tesla with him. Keep in mind that after Tesla had an off-the-chart run in 2020, very different year this year. It's fallen more than 30% from its peak in late January. We recently had an analyst coming out saying Tesla's global EV market is, uh, share is falling. And then there's Elon getting into restaurants. So Ross Gerber, presidency of Gerber Kawasaki Wealth and Investment Management, is on the phone back with us from Santa Monica, California. He is a fan of Tesla cars, owns cars, and the company's stock. So good to have you here. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Uh, doing well, doing well. I've been looking forward to talking to you. Um, 30% lower. What's going on? Are you running for the exits when it comes to Tesla? <laughs> no, no. Definitely not. In fact, you know, at these prices, I'm a buyer Anytime the stock's below 600, I typically will add it to portfolios, especially ones that don't have much exposure to Tesla, like newer accounts. But, but I think you know Tesla ran up obviously to a very very high valuation. So part of this is just coming back to some reasonable valuation in here. So you know by any means Tesla should probably change trade between 500 and 1,000 over the short term, you know, period of time. So, you know, I don't look at that as a concern to me because we really just follow what the company's doing. 
and, and what the company's trying to execute, and, and if they well, achieve their goals, the stock will follow. Well, but what about market share going down? I think it was Credit Suisse that has a, a report that says market share fell to 11% in April. We know China's been pushing back on them. Uh, then you got, you know, Elon saying restaurants. Like, it, come on, Ross. Well, like, no, don't no, no. you? Okay. It's Mar- <laughs> when your market share is 100%, you can only go down. So that that's a little bit disingenuous, especially coming from Credit Suisse that can't even manage their book. But, but I think... Um, there, there's going to be other cars, and the EV business is going to expand exponentially as more and more people get into this business. So we expect our market share to go down, but the actual share of cars that are sold EVs to go up substantially from where they are today, which is just a few percent of, of all cars sold. So, so we really see for all EV makers, whether it be Ford or Tesla, a huge opportunity to go EV. And so we don't ascribe any value to that. Now, the restaurant thing, I think, has to do with the supercharger. So if you go to a Tesla supercharger, especially some of the new big ones, you know, people hang out for 30 minutes, and what most of them, you know, we go into the mall where it is, and we get food, you know, that's pretty mm-hmm. much what you do. Uh, there's a Nike store, and the one up in San Luis Obispo at Pismo. Hey, that's my hometown, Ross. Oh, it's a great supercharger, great. Love Pismo, by the way. And, <laughs> and you know, I'm up there, and I go shop at Nike, I get my kids' shoes, and I come back, and the car's charged. So, so putting restaurants in makes a lot of sense um, because then they can control the experience around the charger. And, and the Tesla community loves hanging out. Um, so I, I, I see that as a net positive. He's not going to be a restaurant tour, you know what I mean? Right. Well, let's go from California to China and the opportunity in China because the information has a report out today, uh, the tech news site, saying that uh, there are concerns about the Chinese orders dropping by almost half in May. What do you make of that? It's just not the information we have. Our information shows China's demand is off the charts for EVs and Tesla. The Chinese love Tesla. I can show you photos of like full China, you know, Tesla stores, showrooms, you know. So how Tesla delivers cars varies by quarter. And one of the issues that I think we need to get to the bottom with with Tesla, which I think has less to do with demand, is how much are these part shortages affecting supply? Okay, mm-hmm. because the Model S Plaid is still not out. Okay, it was supposed to be launched today. Actually, now it's postponed another week. I think it has to do with parts. We had this issue with, you know, the the, the seats, you know, and the passenger seat, you know, not having lumbar support button. You know, these are parts issues, and all the car companies are struggling now, not only to meet demand, but to like get all these parts. And we're seeing slowdowns in the factories and all the major car companies. So. This is the part I'm trying to get to the bottom of, not really worried about demand at all, is are we having issues with supply? Have you sold any shares in the current quarter? Um, I always buy and sell shares depending on the client. So, for example, yes, I've sold shares for clients who have been long-term investors who have huge overweight positions in, and then I've bought shares for clients that are new that don't have big positions in Tesla. So we try to manage to a portfolio allocation. Um, Our allocation to Tesla has gone down over the last, I would say, six months because it became extremely overvalued in our portfolios, and we manage risk and and balance our our risk rewards with our – Opportunities. So Tesla has been a wonderful reward for us, and and we did take you know a considerable amount of profit with that. And but it is still our largest stock position of individual stocks that we own, um, closely followed by MGM and Disney. What's the typical concentration that you have in a portfolio that's been with you for a while? For Tesla, for Tesla. right now it's it's managed at around a six percent allocation. So substantial, but not you know everything. 
No, I, you know, listen, I, I, we, we manage money for lots of different people here, and we manage risk very, you know, carefully. My philosophy of investing is trying not to lose people any money. Right. It's not maximum return. I've been doing this. This is actually my anniversary. It's my 28th year now coming Congratulations. in. Congratulations. And you don't make it through all these bear markets if all you're worried about is maximum return and I missed AMC or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, so we manage risk yeah. very closely, and, and I consider 6% allocation pretty heavy. Well, your clients are saying, thank you, Ross, for uh, you know trying to minimize any kind of losses. <laughs> That's what we hope for. Hey, Ross, always good to check in with you. Ross Gerber, he is President and Chief Executive Officer at Gerber Kawasaki Wealth and Investment Management. On the phone from Santa Monica, owns Tesla's, uh, owns the shares as well as you just heard. Uh, Tesla's shares are down about 28 bucks in today's trade. This is Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about 10 and a half minutes left in today's trading session. And we've been bouncing around, but we're... Definitely off our lows of the session, but uh, also off our best level. Still down about 1% on the NASDAQ, as you just heard Charlie recapping the numbers. Let's get to it with Brian Jacobson. He's multi-asset strategist at Wells Fargo Asset Management. Joining us on the drive to the close on this Thursday, $506 billion in assets under management on the phone from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Brian, it is an interesting day to say the least. Uh, we focus on the meme stocks. We've got economic news. Uh, we're getting ready for the monthly jobs report. What is it that you have you and your team focusing on right now when it comes to market fundamentals? Hey, yeah, it seems like you've got to focus on a number of things all at once. Uh, you know, last night when I checked Bloomberg, uh, it looked like the S&P 500 futures were in the green. They were positive. And then it seemed like after it was announced that the central bank in Russia was going to get out of U.S. dollar denominated assets, uh, things went south from there. I think that, uh, you know, maybe the market is beginning to get a little worried about some of those geopolitical issues, whether it's, you know, human rights issues with China, what that's going to do with the United States relationships or cyber attacks uh, uh, allegedly coming from Russia. Uh, and then also you've got the Fed, uh, you know, perhaps talking about talking about tapering uh, plenty of things to be worrying about but we're actually still optimistic um, we're still maintaining our pro cyclical stance with our portfolios uh, you know watching the data very closely I mean, we do think that this growth and inflation dynamic will uh, resolve itself to be where it is transitory inflation uh, and that uh, we could still see uh, not just decent growth this year but actually a slightly higher uh, trend rate of growth coming out of the COVID crisis. Hmm. Wow. Um, so uh, you do you do agree with the Federal Reserve officials who continue to reiterate that they believe this inflation that we're seeing now is transitory? Oh, we do. And, you know, the reason for that is that uh, when we look at a variety of different uh, le uh, what we consider to be leading indicators of inflation, uh, a lot of it, to be perfectly honest, I think hinges on two things. Um, one is bank lending coming out of the COVID crisis. Uh, how quickly will that accelerate? Because inflation, people think that it's you know always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. That was a famous quote from Milton Friedman. But it's more about credit availability and lending. Um, and so far, you know, banks haven't really. 
uh, held a lot of additional assets on their balance sheets uh, unless they're treasuries. Uh, and so we have to see what happens with bank credit uh, coming out of the COVID crisis. Uh, and then productivity growth. Uh, if you actually have um, strong productivity growth, you can support faster wage growth and yet uh, have declining prices. And so we think that a lot of the uh, impulse to the inflation numbers is leading ultimately. So you said that you think the growth and in inflation dynamic um, will eventually resolve itself to where you said it is transitory and settle with a higher trend growth rate. What kind of growth rate? Yeah, you know, coming into the COVID crisis, seems like people were just content with, oh, chugging along at two, two and a half percent. But if you actually get uh, that faster productivity growth, that could support something closer to three percent. Now, that might not sound like a lot if you go from two and a half to three percent, but, you know, multi-trillion dollar economy, that does add up. Uh, and so we think that uh, that's really the thing that uh, we have to see more evidence of. But it seems like we have early signs that businesses are making the investment in capital expenditures. So property, plant, and equipment. COVID forced a lot of technology adoption on individuals and businesses that they otherwise wouldn't have done or maybe would have done, but over a longer time frame. And that could then actually result in that faster productivity growth. How much of the productivity growth or economic growth that you see happening this year and even next year, as you mentioned, is priced into markets right now? And, and what opportunity is there for more gains in the markets? Because the market's forward looking. So I, I do, and I ask this question all the time, what is priced in and what isn't? Yeah, that's, that's the tricky thing. Uh, going into this year, we thought that uh, we'd probably get around 4,200 on the S&P 500 and then encounter some turbulence. Uh, and that's that like pretty much where deal. we are. That's pretty much where we are. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, and we've experienced a little bit of turbulence. Uh, I, I don't think anything to really uh, write home about. Uh, but, you know, it, it, the uh, summer isn't even here yet. So let's let's see what happens. Um, and then, you know, making a move higher more in 2022 towards around 4,400 on the S&P 500. So, uh, you know, th- maybe the market did get this priced in properly as far as the growth outlook. But where we think that there could be more of a disconnect is in terms of uh, how much better longer-term growth could be going forward, and then also the value growth rotation, how long that could last. Um, it, you know, we think that maybe a lot of the large versus small, so the, the rotation back into small, maybe that has kind of played itself out. But we think that uh, the given the cyclical exposure uh, within the value side of the spectrum, that's where we think that could actually have some legs. Um, corporate taxes. We did see markets seem to get a little bit of a leg up or at least bounce off their lows when uh, the Washington Post initially and Bloomberg matching this story as well. The president seems to be offering a major change to tax proposal and offer to get his infrastructure deal through with Republicans. So now we're talking about a corporate tax rate maybe starting with a floor of about 15 percent. That's very different from what he talked about earlier. How big of a deal could that be potentially to companies, corporate profits that ultimately play out in the uh, equity markets? Yeah, we actually think that could be a very big deal. And uh, I mean, to be honest, though, we thought that his original proposal about bumping up the corporate tax rate was almost just a starting point for negotiations. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're kind of saying uh, what are the contours around where he wants to go. And then uh, I I think it's a testimony to how he wants to get a deal done. Uh, 
uh, and he's not going to be very doctrinaire about what that rate needs to be. Uh, maybe it's going to actually be uh, a variety of taxes on high net worth individuals and on corporations. But does it really matter to corporations? Does it really, like, how much does, you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it matters, but we also the know the effective ta- or the real tax rate that they ultimately pay yeah. is often a lot less than uh, what the mandated rate is. It is exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's why they have tax attorneys. Right? I mean, there's all sorts of different <laughs> well ways. It's also one of the reasons why it tends to hit smaller cap uh, more than large cap, just because of if you think about number one, the domestic orientation is small caps relative to large caps, but then also the resources that they have as far as doing, you know, transfer pricing arrangements and setting up, you know, different uh, vehicles in order to engage in legal, you know, tax avoidance. Um, it, it might not matter quite as much. Uh, and you know, one of the things that could happen if you increase the corporate tax rate is that it could actually encourage businesses to take on more leverage. Hmm. And I think that a lot of people are already worried about how much leverage businesses have taken on uh, with low interest rates. And if you bump up the corporate tax rate, well, uh, one way that you can try to shield that is through the interest tax shield on debt. And so does that then just create some future vulnerability as far as, you know, increased financial leverage? Brian, just... um, we have we only we have, have 15 no seconds a free lunch. we yeah. only have 15 seconds left i want to know if any of the volatility that we're seeing in the meme stocks amc down 17% express down 20% bed bath and beyond down 28% does that have any risk of, of going further into markets just about 20 seconds here yeah we we don't think so we don't think that it represents any sort of systemic risk i mean it's a story that's been around for a while and it's very interesting uh but uh, to us it doesn't seem like it's spilling over into other parts of the market it seems like it is concentrated within those uh stocks that are mentioned heavily in you know the reddit boards and things like that so we right. don't think it represents any sort of financial risk got around brian thank you so much brian jacobson over at wells fargo asset management Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.